0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. It's a really great honour for me to welcome you all on behalf of our school, the School of Social and Political Sciences, and also the broader Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences to this 11th annual Wheelwright Lecture, and to introduce our esteemed speaker. So this annual lecture, the E.L. or Ted Wheelwright Memorial Lecture, there's a picture here of Ted, is held to commemorate the pioneering role that he played in developing the field of political economy in in Australia more very broadly, but also specifically at the University of Sydney. The Department of Political Economy at Sydney is absolutely thriving, and I see it as a pivotal part of our school. And it continues to set agendas both nationally and internationally. As one might expect in this context, the Wheelwright Lecture has previously been delivered by pivotal figures in the field. This has included Warden Bellow, Sheila Dow, Diane Elson, Susan George, Leo Panitch, Eric Owen Wright, and last year, of course, Kathy Gibson. And I'm delighted to say that the lecture tonight continues within, with this tradition with a highly esteemed speaker, Professor, Professor Alfredo Saad Filio, who is Professor of Political Economy at SOAS University of London. I feel like he hardly needs any introduction, but I'll just say a few words about him. He's got degrees um, in economics from the universities of Brasilia and from SOAS. He has worked in universities and research institutions all around the world, including Brazil, Japan, Mozambique, the list seems endless, (laughs) Switzerland and the UK. His research inc- interests include politi- the political economy of development, industrial policy, neoliberalism, alternative economic policies, Latin American political and economic development, inflation and stabilization, and of course, the labor theory of value. And he's one of the world's leading experts of Marxist economic theory. And he's also author, as everyone here probably knows, of the enormously successful Marx's Capital, which is now in its sixth edition. As well as this book, he's authored and co-authored a number of titles in the field of political economy, including The Value of Marx, Political Economy for Contemporary Capitalism. And his most recent co-authored book is Brazil, Neoliberalism versus Democracy. And he doesn't just produce scholarly works, he's a regular contributor to popular media outlets, um, including key contributions to debates over recent upheavals in Brazil. And of course, he's a founding member of the International Initiative for the Promotion of Political Economy. So we're exceedingly lucky to have him here tonight, and it gives me me great pleasure to invite Alfredo to deliver the Wheelwright Lecture, the title of which is Neoliberalism and the Rising Tide of Authoritarianism.
1: I'm very, very deeply honored uh, to be uh, here. Um, Australian political economy uh, centered in this department um, and uh, following on the footsteps of Ted Wheelwright uh, is one of the most vibrant and most innovative um, today. It thrives uh, both at the level of theory and at the level of engagement uh, with society, which I think is precisely what uh, Ted Wilwright would um, like uh, to see. So I'm very, very happy to be um, here uh, speaking in a lecture named uh, after him. Thank you very much. Um, we live in uh, interesting uh, and disturbing uh, political times, uh, with the election of uh, Donald Trump uh, in the vanguard, uh, straddling uh, the boundary between the unimaginable and the farcical. Uh, Trump's uh, combination of media savvy uh, and a nationalist populism shows uh, the extent to which disorganized frustration can drive uh, electoral uh, success. And unfortunately, Trump is not an isolated example of the politics uh, of the extreme. We know that in recent times, authoritarian governments have been installed uh, in a wide variety uh, of countries. And the problem that we have then is about the nature of contemporary uh, politics. Uh, One aspect uh, of this is the extent to which these phenomena have common roots uh, in economic factors or maybe other uh, factors. Another aspect of this problem is, does this represent something historically uh, unique? Is this capitalism as normal, just stretched and strained by economic crises uh, and by austerity, or is this a new political order that we see uh, emerging? And this is uh, my topic uh, today. So let me start from the conclusion. Uh, and my conclusions, my my, conclu- my conclusions are four. <laughs> First is that 2007 saw uh, a severe crisis within neoliberalism that exposed the limits of reliance on finance as the driver of global accumulation. And initially, the crisis was taken by many uh, as a fatal final crisis of neoliberalism, but it proved to be nothing of the sort. Uh, The reproduction of the system of accumulation was actually never threatened by alternatives. And in most respects, a decade later, neoliberalism turns out to be stronger than it was uh, 10 years ago. Second conclusion That is that the policies and practices associated with neoliberalism and financialization have been drawn into question uh, in the wake of the global crisis. And particularly in the domain of ideology, uh, the myth that the growth of finance could sustain economic prosperity forever. That myth was shattered. That is gone. So after the crisis, what we saw was extensive state intervention launched on an absolutely unprecedented scale to rescue finance, the supposed driver of prosperity. and The states did that through the provision of unlimited resources to large financial institutions, and the biggest banks in the world were both taken into public ownership and targeted for bailouts through easy access to funds at minimum uh, interest rates, through emergency asset purchases, and then through quantitative easing. A decade on, uh, what we find is that those responses did not deliver a renewal of economic performance, even on the limited scale that we experienced uh, in the 1990s, much less in the scale of the post-war economic uh, boom. And recently it has been said and widely accepted that the global economy has entered uh, secular stagnation with no end in sight. So what is it that is going on. My third conclusion is that the economic trials of neoliberalism have been compounded by an escalating crisis of democracy and by a drift towards authoritarianism in a growing number of countries where we find uh, commonly spectacular leaders driving right-wing exclusionary uh, programs backed up by new mass movements of the far right. And what, what I will argue today is that this uh, process cannot be reduced to an easily reversible um, advance of untenable projects that will inevitably, inevitably fail, um, projects led by uh, self-centered or thieving or megalomaniac uh, politicians. We will not have a return to politics as normal. And I will then argue, finally, that authoritarian neoliberalism is an original Uh, phenomenon. It is typically neoliberal and it expresses the disorganized fury of masses of people who have lost out uh, under neoliberalism uh, and are confronting a state that has lost legitimacy uh, itself. But this is an unstable arrangement that will tend to evolve towards new forms of uh, fascism. Okay, On this optimistic note, Let's move on. What I will try to do now is to explore these arguments in a little bit more detail. And we live today uh, in the age of neoliberalism. This is political reality. This is also the common sense uh, of our time. This is a stage of capitalism that emerged after the end of the post-war boom, first in the UK and in the USA, and then spread out uh, primarily through Atlanticism and the Washington uh, Consensus. Now the most important uh, feature of neoliberalism uh, is the financialization of production, the financialization of exchange, the financialization of social reproduction, meaning by this, the subsumption of economic and social reproduction by the intensive and extensive accumulation of interest-bearing capital. So financialization will underpin the neoliberal system of accumulation, uh, which itself is articulated through the power of the state. Neoliberalism is not about the withdrawal of the state. It is supported by the power of the state to impose, to drive, to underwrite, to manage uh, the internationalization of production and finance within each territory, under the veil of the uh, promotion of non-interventionism. Neoliberalism is the opposite of what it pretends to be. Those processes and financialization as a whole, uh, they have allowed financial institutions to capture a growing share of the value produced. That is. The most typical example, the case of the USA, the profits captured by financial institutions jumped from a little over 10% of total profits in the immediate post-war period to a peak of 41% of total profits in 2002. That share crashed after the crisis, but by 2009 it had already returned to something between 20 and 30% of total profits. Now finance being an unproductive sector, these are transfers from the non-financial sector and they have led led to the polarization of incomes under neoliberalism. So under neoliberalism, uh, financialization has led both to the recovery of profitability after the crises of Keynesianism, but also led to rising inequality in almost every region in the world. Now, this is an interpretation of neoliberalism as a stage of capitalism based on financialization, and it leads to a specific understanding of the transformations in the processes of growth, investment, production, employment, finance, and consumption in the world in which we live. Within this particular system of accumulation, some countries have been able to sustain absolutely impressive Uh, rates of economic growth, particularly in Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia, with China becoming recently the export assembly hub uh, for the world. But very, very far from leading uh, to global convergence. What neoliberalism has done is to create new patterns of uneven and combined development where immense prosperity within and across countries and regions have benefited particular strata of the population that are now commonly referred to as the elites, the oligarchs, the top 1%, the top 0.01%. Their staggering, unprecedented prosperity now coexists with new patterns of poverty and with the reproduction of poverty where poverty already uh, prevailed. So financialization has driven this restructuring of the global economy and this restructuring of societies uh, around uh, the world, nationally and globally as well. Financialization has also created a tendency towards short-termism and a tendency towards speculation as opposed to long-term investment in pursuit of productivity uh, growth. So accumulation, unsurprisingly, accumulation under neoliberalism tends to take the form of finance-driven bubbles that are parasitical on the intensified exploitation uh, of the workers, parasitical through the restructuring of production at the global level and the expansion of precarious uh, forms of labor, culminating now in the gig economy. Parasitical through extractions from the periphery, through uh, unequal trade, financial extraction, rents, uh, and so on. Parasitical uh, through the relentless plunder of nature. And these growth bubbles, they are bubbles, they collapse in the containment of the crisis and the follow-up of recovery, they always invariably require a state-sponsored uh, state-sponsored, salvaging process. Those cycles, you can go back, those cycles include the international debt crisis of the early 1980s, the US savings and loans crisis of the mid-1980s, the stock market crashes of the 1980s and 90s, the Japanese crisis and permanent underperformance since then, uh, uh, since the late 1980s, the crises in several uh, middle income countries at the end of the 20th century, the dot com, the financial uh, and the housing bubbles of the early 2000s that led to a global financial uh, crisis and the limited recovery uh, since uh, 2007. So, financialization has been attached to uh, declining investment, and to increasing volatility, both within and across uh, economic and social sectors, uh, both nationally and globally, uh, as well. Now, these uh, limitations of financialization, these contradictions of financialization and neoliberalism, have led to uh, underperformance underperformance compared to the Keynesian uh, Golden Age, the so-called Golden Age uh, after the Second World War, even though neoliberalism has been associated with unprecedentedly favorable conditions for capital accumulation um, created by neoliberalism uh, itself. Conditions that include the the West's victory uh, in the Cold War, the collapse of most nationalist uh, movements in the Global South, the liberalization of trade, finance and capital movements around the world, the absolutely unparalleled support to accumulation that is provided by competing states, the reduction of taxation, of transfers and welfare provision in most uh, countries, the decline of traditional sources of resistance, for example, trade unions and peasant movements, left parties and social movements uh, of the left, and then the ideological hegemony of an absolutely bogus but vociferous free market uh, capitalism. But instead of thriving on the basis of these incredibly favorable conditions, neoliberalism has underperformed economically and then has been troubled by instability, particularly since 2007, leading to the deepest and longest uh, economic calamity and the weakest recovery and the most most, uh, regressive economic recovery uh, on uh, record. So in this light, what I'm calling The economic paradox of neoliberalism is that the delivery by neoliberalism itself of extraordinarily favorable conditions for accumulation has been associated with an absolutely staggering inability to capitalize on those conditions. Now, the relationship between financialization and neoliberalism has been through three uh, basic uh, periods that are kind of loosely divided by the early 1990s and then by the global uh, crisis. And this is inevitably more logical than chronological, but this is good enough as a, as a starting point. The first phase of neoliberalism was a transition, or the shock phase, that goes against the previous system of accumulation uh, with the aggressive promotion of the interests of private capital regardless of consequences. And this transition, almost everywhere, requires intervention by the state, by force, to contain labor, to disorganize the left, to promote the transnational integration of domestic capital and finance, and to put in place the new institutional framework. And this can be illustrated by the military coups in Uruguay, in Chile, and Argentina in the 1970s, then followed more systematically by Thatcherism and Reaganism and their offspring in the advanced economies, and then by structural adjustment in Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa since the 1980s, and then by the transitions to capitalism in Eastern Europe in the early 1990s, and this phase closes with the East Asian crisis in the late 1990s. And then we move on globally to a second Uh, phase, a mature phase, a third-wayist phase uh, within neoliberalism, which was a reaction uh, to the dysfunctions and the adverse consequences of the first phase. This this third-wayist, mature phase of neoliberalism focused on stabilization. It was the stabilization of the social relations that had been imposed in the previous uh, period. It was about the consolidation and the expansion of the hegemony of finance in economic and in social reproduction. It was about the state management of the new modalities of international uh, integration of economy, society, culture and so on. And it was about the rolling out of new uh, neoliberal, specifically neoliberal social policies, to manage the deprivations that had been created in the previous phase, and to manage the dysfunctions that neoliberalism had unleashed, and then to constitute neoliberal subjectivities. Now, in this, the ideology of self-responsibility was very, very significant, because what self-responsibility implies is the withdrawal from the citizens of their collective capacities. It is the valuing of consumption above everything else. It is the placing of merit uh, of success and then burden of failure on the isolated individual. And it is a suggestion that the resolution of every social problem requires the uh, even greater individualization and financialization of social intercourse. So after the great financial crisis, we then move on to a third period uh, within neoliberalism that is characterized by loss of legitimacy. Loss of legitimacy following the absolutely stunning and astronomically costly flaws of financialization uh, and by the perception that neoliberalism had driven an accelerated a concentration of income and wealth and that it had imposed Highly unpopular patterns of employment and social reproduction and realization that even though neoliberalism had created entirely favorable conditions for accumulation, all this restructuring of the relationships between state, finance uh, and industry had failed to deliver macroeconomic stability, growth, employment, rising incomes for the majority. It has failed, failed to do that. And those developments then had to be uh, buttressed by increasingly repressive forms of rule and then validated by selective discourses uh, and practices of nationalism and racism. And this authoritarian shift, which we see now, is then uh, now essential to sustain the system of accumulation, partly because it is unable, as well as being disinclined, to realize any form of shared prosperity. That's not what neoliberalism uh, is about. So even though the policies that were imposed after the crisis did manage to restore the profitability of global finance, which we saw uh, in a previous slide, the causes of the crisis have remained unaddressed. We're still open to a repeat. And the policies deployed to contain the crisis created new vulnerabilities. So, for example, zero interest rates, the rescue policies, and quantitative easing were supposed to reduce systemic financial risk. What they did in reality was to create speculative bubbles, especially centered in the global south. Between the start of the crisis in 2015, the total debt of financial corporations increased by $12 trillion, public sector debt increased by $25 trillion, and the liabilities of households increased by $7 trillion. So where is this leading to? And it's not just that. Virtually all the gains achieved in the current recovery were captured by the top income strata. In the United States, again, our typical example, between 2009 and 2013, all the income growth went to the top 10% of families and the income of the bottom 90% actually fell. Now That is a pattern uh, of growth and development created by neoliberalism itself. Neoliberalism embodies very strong tendencies towards the concentration of income when the economy grows. Tendencies towards the concentration of income when the economy contracts and tendencies towards the concentration of income when the economy recovers. It is a perverse system of accumulation in this particular sense. But in addition to these economic processes, there's also a wide variety of political paths of transition to neoliberalism that I have uh, touched on. And neoliberal transitions can take place by constitutional means, in most advanced economies, that's what happened. Neoliberal transitions can take place through terrorist dictatorships, see the example of many Latin American countries and Sub-Saharan African countries, or you can have coeval transitions to neoliberalism and to a political democracy in countries like Brazil or South Africa or South Korea and across Eastern Europe. But what we also have is a typical uh, democratic political form of neoliberalism spreading in the 1990s. And these were neoliberal democracies that were necessarily different from the political forms associated uh, with the core countries in the classic liberal period before World War I, or different from the social democratic compacts that we saw again in the advanced economies after World War II. And the neoliberal democracy that we saw, especially during the 1990s, uh, was uh, limited and it was contradictory at three uh, levels. The first level is that neoliberal democracy is circumscribed. A neoliberal democracy will typically include an institutional apparatus that is deliberately designed to insulate decisions about economic policy, away from the interference of the majority of the population. So all these substantive choices about social provision, the composition of output, the structure of employment, and the distribution of income will be transferred away into presumably technical uh, institutions. That's ministries of finance that will be dominated by neoliberal policy That is, so-called independent central banks that will be captured by finance and mandated to deliver legally binding inflation targets plus rescue feckless financial institutions when that becomes necessary. They'll be transferred to treasury departments that are constrained by maximum fiscal deficits except when they must provide unlimited resources to finance. They'll be constrained by floating exchange rate uh, regimes that will limit governments to following the wishes of the market traders. They'll be constrained by privatized utility companies that will then be owned by transnationalized hedge funds. They'll be constrained by regulatory agencies that are all invariably captured by the conglomerates that are nominally under their authority. They'll be constrained by business associations, by international organizations, by the European Commission, by the US Treasury uh, Department, the US State Department, by their local uh, enforcers. And the authority of those institutions is underpinned by a judicial system that is tasked with enforcing the laws that neoliberalism itself has imposed. Now, these institutional structures effected uh, what they did was to transfer to finance the allocative functions that were previously performed by the Keynesian states. And they also locked in neoliberalism institutionally now the result of that was the shrinkage of the policy space available to the institution to the institutions of nominally democratic states together with the contraction of space for legitimate opposition so increasingly in a normal neoliberal democracy politics became uh, reduced to the competition between shades of neoliberalism in a heavily circumscribed political market. policy or Politics, politics was about New Labour versus moderate Tories in the UK. It was about Clinton Democrats versus establishment Republicans in the US. It was about center-right versus center-left in Canada, in France, in Germany, and in Italy, possibly in Australia too, I don't know. But the limits of their A friendly jewel was then policed by a very aggressive and plutocratic right-wing media in the country of Murdoch, you'll know what I'm talking about. These reforms were not just uh, imposed by narrow financial elites aiming to control the state for their own selfish interests. not just that. The point is that the transnational integration, that's a little bit more suspense, the transnational integration of production and finance directly constrains domestic policy space. When we have globalized production and consumption under the new a form of U.S. imperialism reconstituted after the Vietnam War, then you need to have uh, international uh, legal and policy harmony. You have to have constant negotiations. You need to have policy conditionalities. You need to have treaties. And then you need to drastically limit the scope for variety in modalities of social reproduction. So, neoliberal states, neoliberal societies, neoliberal political systems inevitably tend to lose capacity to shape policy within their own uh, borders, and that will inevitably reduce the scope for the political system to find negotiated solutions to national problems. And this is a degradation of democracy that will undermine neoliberal states and neoliberal political systems and will lead to a declining capacity uh, of those states and those political systems to address conflicting demands. And the implication is that neoliberal democracies are intrinsically exclusionary at the level of decision-making around neoliberal lives or neoliberalized lives. That's my first limitation. The second limitation of neoliberal democracy uh, is because uh, of the fact that neoliberalism has been associated with economic restructuring. It's been associated with the internationalization of systems of production across labor processes, across technologies, across inputs, across outputs, with implications for patterns of international specializations, patterns of employment, patterns of consumption in forms of uh, social reproduction and community life. And those processes have created a very large array of economic losers, centered around the working class, but going beyond it. Millions of skilled jobs have been eliminated, especially in the advanced economies. Entire professions have vanished or were exported. Employment opportunities in the public sector have worsened because of privatizations and the retrenchment of the state. Job stability has declined around the economy. Pay and conditions have tended to deteriorate under neoliberalism. There were very severe losses following for the informal workers who lost prospects of stable employment, and then also for skilled workers who fear the export of their jobs and then also have to bear the stress of overwork because patterns of employment have tended to become more and more precarious, even for people in formal uh, employment. And there are similar pressures uh, on an indebted, impoverished, anxious and increasingly vulnerable middle-class around the world. So while those economic changes imposed by neoliberalism have created vast numbers of economic losers, the transformation of social structures, uh, institutions, uh, and the law have evacuated the political sphere, making those losers increasingly unable to resist against neoliberalism, increasingly unable even to conceptualize progressive alternatives drawing from the ideological hegemony of neoliberalism and the weight of the media. That was my second limitation. The third limitation of neoliberal democracy is then that the economic, political, ideological and institutional hegemony of neoliberalism has been accompanied by a dramatic narrowing of political ambition, uh, and a dramatic narrowing of the scope for collective action uh, because of two converging processes. One is the loss of sources of inspiration for policy alternatives. After the collapse of the national liberation movements and national liberation governments in the global south, the end of the USSR, whatever you think of the USSR, all the changes in China, the collapse of revolutionary left parties in most countries, uh, and so on. On the other side, you have the systematic escalation of the policing of dissent across individual privacy, civil liberties, and collective action, particularly, clearly, after 9-11. Now, the evacuation of political democracy tends to be perceived by the losers through the lens of corruption uh, of poorly specified uh, elites and undue privilege given to the undeserving poor, to minorities, to foreigners, and to foreign countries. Now, those groups are falsely taken to be favored by public policy, uh, and then you reconstruct state institutions as being hostile to those presumably morally upright uh, losers who increasingly find it difficult to make ends uh, meet. Everything in the world seems to be upside down, in contrast with the misty olden days when people of good character, strong discipline in sharing our values, meaning mostly males with the right ethnic background, they could count on steady employment, rising incomes, promotion prospects, secure pensions. It was a good world if you belonged to that group of people. And this leads to a political paradox that I'll come back to uh, in a moment. So because of the fragmentation of society, because of the ideological hegemony of neoliberalism, uh, those demands of the losers tend to be framed in very general terms and drawing on simplistic discourses, drawing on uh, common sense and on a universalist ethics based on identity. And this is an approach to politics that can lead to uh, demands for the restoration of privilege. All this veiled by a classless discourse that focuses on moral values, focuses on justice, focuses on a level playing field, focuses on the uh, assertion of traditional rights, focuses on demands for respect, and focuses on calls for honesty in public life. So in contemporary neoliberalism, the losers are increasingly uh, driven to frame their disappointments, their resentments, their fears, their hopes, through the prism of an ethical conflict between insiders and outsiders, in a moral universe where there is no systemic exploitation. What is actually happening in this discourse is that our group is surrounded by predatory non-members, And within our group itself, honest individuals are besieged by dishonest characters. Our values of honesty and hard work are undermined by politicians stealing our money, by immigrants crowding us out of our houses and our hospitals, by distant countries stealing our jobs, and so on. So it's always the other. And these exclusionary tendencies have then been intensified by fiscal austerity that was imposed after the great financial crisis, have been intensified by the cumulative impact of low economic growth, and then the degradation of economic prospects that follows from that, and intensified by the growing awareness of the inequities of neoliberalism uh, itself. So the social and economic and institutional and political changes imposed by neoliberalism. They have fueled a narrative that in which solutions have to come from outside politics because they cannot come from inside. Solutions have to be based on intransigent campaigns because you have to push hard to make a, a, a system that is institutionally rigid respond to your demands. And you have to project agency. Since you've lost collective agency, you project agency on individual leaders because all these structures of collective action have been disabled. Now, political activity along these lines will tend to lead, uh, I would argue, to destabilizing, but not to transformative outcomes for the system of accumulation. So in this sense, the hegemony of neoliberalism and the uh, economic, social, and political degradation of the working class uh, have unmoored neoliberal democracy, but they have also undermine the search for solutions and for alternatives. So the political paradox uh, of neoliberalism uh, to me is about the disintegration of neoliberal democracy through the weight of these tensions and these contradictions. Neoliberal democracy has emptied the state of political capacities. Neoliberal democracy has imposed institutional rigidity. It has reduced the space for political negotiation and for collective uh, initiative. And the consolidation of this perverse political order has eroded its own legitimacy. And then the stresses of the global crisis have undermined the ideological hegemony of neoliberalism. This is a political crisis. and those circumstances, promoted anti-systemic forces dominated by the far right, polarized by authoritarian leaders that promised to confront the neoliberal state, promised to confront finance, confront globalization, confront the elites, confront foreigners, and so on, and then in order to gain the support of the losers, and while at the same time when they are in power, those leaders will push through policies that lead to the intensification of neoliberalism under the guise of nationalism and a more or less explicit racism. So the political crisis of neoliberalism is about much more than Donald Trump Trump received less votes than Hillary Clinton. Uh, It's it's about much more than Brexit uh, because Brexit won at the margin and there was absolutely no agreement, there could be no agreement about what the vote was for. Um, It is the the, uh, crisis of neoliberalism, the political crisis, about much more than the authoritarian leaders that are emerging today. What we have now is a systemic crisis of severe consequences, severe implications for the system of accumulation. So the disintegration of neoliberal democracy first became evident when elected governments uh, in the European Union were excluded from office and replaced by so-called non-party technocrats in the Eurozone periphery. And then subsequently a Greek administration that was elected for its advocacy of unconventional economic strategies was forced to abandon that strategy. And then the Malays reached the core NATO countries. Brexit won in the UK, Donald Trump won in the United States. In France, Marine Le Pen reached the second round of the presidential elections, which were then won by Emmanuel Macron, uh, an unconventional politician leading a new political party completely aligned with neoliberalism. You have nativist Uh, Populism thriving in Austria and Switzerland and across uh, Scandinavia. If you look at the eastern periphery of the EU, you have a succession of far-right politicians uh, prospering on the basis of uh, incredibly exclusionary and xenophobic uh, programs. If you look at the global uh, periphery, you have authoritarian leaders uh, and movements winning elections by fair means or foul in Argentina, in India, in Russia, in Turkey. You look at dissenting governments being ejected from office more or less forcefully in Brazil, Egypt, Honduras, Paraguay and Thailand, with escalating pressures on Nicaragua and Venezuela. You have policies being pursued by these administrations converging uh, around more or less uh, overtly repressive and racist forms of neoliberalism, justified by unwieldy combinations of national values in the imperatives of austerity. Across Europe, Many traditional political parties, especially in the social democratic camp, those parties have split, they have shrunk, they have even imploded completely. But the mainstream conservative parties have been more resilient. It's a very interesting contrast, partly because the mainstream uh, right is more closely aligned with the dominant ideology, so they don't need so many contortions to conform, but also partly because the right is more used to deploying misleading programs and nationalist slogans to remain in power but even those parties even those parties have been compelled to triangulate towards uh, increasingly strident nationalist and exclusionary programs because there is a new generation of nationalist parties and neo-fascist movements growing and threatening their core vote from the right so it seems clear that the rise of authoritarian forms of neoliberalism is not a transitory blip that will inevitably fail and then lead to the restoration of normal, centrist, third-wayist, Blairite, evacuated neoliberal policies. This is also not a marker of the end of neoliberalism, not at all. The rise of authoritarian uh, neoliberal leaders is a symptom of the decomposition of neoliberal democracy. It is uh, the outcome of the restructuring of economies, political systems, institutions of representation, and societies under neoliberalism. And it's evidence of the hijacking of mass discontent by the far right, given the destruction of the left. So there... Their rise to power, their their, their prominence, is a sign of the emergence of new hegemonic blocks in global neoliberalism. A block that is emerging and that is grounded on the vulnerability of those losers to capture by the far right. They can recognize the damage are caused by neoliberalism. They distrust the dysfunctionality of neoliberalism in the political domain, but those losers are led by politicians, by right-wing forces, by the media, to blame groups at the very bottom of society for the disasters that were created by neoliberalism itself. You have crises of provision of health, education, and housing. It must be the fault of people even poorer than us who are taking what belongs to us. You have crises of deindustrialization, unemployment, de-skilling. It must be the fault of countries, even poorer than than we are. And these views are destructive, uh, destructive of any form of collective uh, identity. But then you cohere again. You can cohere society around the rejection of corruption and in support of nationalism, which is the only permissible form of collective identity under neoliberalism. But this easily slides into racism. So the systemic shortcomings, limitations of neoliberalism, they are dislocated towards issues of individual and country level dishonesty. Look at at Trump's discourse as a clear example. Cheating, this sort of thing. And then the failings of the system of accumulation itself, they are disguised. Neoliberalism then offers people a way to respond to those injuries by reaffirming their innate virtues and their spirit of cohesion. And you use this to support reactionary programs that appeal to common sense. And that are fronted by supposedly strong leaders who can talk honestly uh, to you, who can represent the people and and who can get things done by force of will, supported by claims of business acumen how many successful businessmen are now in politics. So personal strength of character and personal economic success are perceived to be essential to bulldoze through uh, entrenched uh, interests, bulldoze over corrupt politicians, selfish civil servants, captured institutions, all of which undermine our nation and undermine our people, harm our people. Now those authoritarian neoliberal leaders, they made their way to political power by using clever ploys, by using expensive advertising, through planned agitation, by brute force, all of this aiming to put in place a radical neoliberal program grounded on conservative politics, and then using the state to steamroll the opposition. This is is not populism. This is not Bonapartism under neoliberal conditions. This is the politics of demagogues. It's the politics of con men, the politics of illusionists, who have risen through the opportunistic exploitation of fractures in the neoliberal order. But to their right, to their right stand even more dangerous movements claiming to represent the losers in even more aggressive uh, ways. So the transformation of authoritarian neoliberalism into material force is then the reflex of an increasingly desperate search by the losers for ways to short circuit a political system that is unquestionably jammed, uh, and then to try and secure gains for people who have grown tired of feeling unfairly disadvantaged and losing out to undeserving others that are creeping into their society. Now, the paradox of authoritarian neoliberalism, to me, is that it leads to the personalization of politics through the emergence of spectacular leaders that are untethered by stabilizing intermediary uh, institutions, party structures, trade unions, social movements, the law. They, They despise all this. They ride over it. Those leaders are committed to neoliberalism and to the expansion of their own self-referential power, uh, and they try to do this through the promotion of uh, agendas that harm their own political base. In government, when they get to power, those leaders promote a radical version of neoliberalism uh, and then attack all forms of opposition. They promote unchecked financialization, they they give even more power to the neoliberal elites that already support them. Society is even more divided, wages decline, taxes become more regressive, social protections are eroded, economies become more unbalanced, poverty grows. Mass frustration will intensify, leading to more unfocused discontent. The implication is that authoritarian neoliberalism is intrinsically unstable. It gives greater prominence in greater space to the far right, and as it does this, the politics of neoliberalism are even more steeply corroded from within. Modern forms of fascism follow from that. Let me, let me uh, wrap up. Neoliberalism is trapped by three paradoxes today. The economic paradox is that it has created favourable conditions for accumulation, but has shown an absolutely amazing inability to capitalize on that. The political paradox is that the consolidation of neoliberal democracy undermined the political order of neoliberalism and the ideology that legitimized it and led to anti-systemic forces dominated by uh, spectacular leaders, the rightward shift of the political spectrum and the growth of the far right. The paradox of authoritarian neoliberalism is that the emergence of those political leaders that are committed to an extreme form of neoliberalism and committed to the consolidation of their own personal power, and those governments promote a radicalized version of neoliberalism, attack the opposition, destroy democracy as they impose an economic program that harms their own base of support. So these are political forms that cannot deliver stability, they are likely, to lead to new forms of fascism uh, which are bound to grow, I think, as neoliberal economies continue to face volatility and political instability. In the absence of a strong left, neoliberalism is likely to enter a long period of crisis politics, um, with the emergence of political forms that are paradoxically anti-trade in the epoch of globalization. Political forms that are pro-finance when everyone recognizes the damages of financialization, that are anti-immigrant in an age of unprecedented human movement, and that are nationalist when you need international policy coordination for capital accumulation to be viable today. But those contradictions, they won't lead to neoliberalism being uh, supplanted by a more progressive a system of accumulation. Authoritarian neoliberalism is an original phenomenon. It has not emerged to shield capitalism against the rise of the left uh, in a period of much smaller integration of production like fascism did in the 1930s. This is a form of authoritarianism that is typically neoliberal. It expresses the co-option of the disorganized fury of millions of losers under neoliberalism in circumstances of an evacuated democracy and then confronting a state apparatus that has lost legitimacy as the kind of potential better of improvements in social cohesion. No one cares about that anymore in the short term, the rise of those authoritarian leaders, uh, and authoritarian neoliberalism, uh, in general, uh, this comes from the degradation of economies, societies, and political systems by the global financial crisis, and then it's additional degradation because of the containment strategies through fiscal austerity and the intensification of financialization. In the longer term, we have contradictions in the restructuring of production, social reproduction, and structures of political representation under neoliberalism. If you do not have systemic rivals at home or abroad, neoliberal authoritarianism will focus on attacking the weak, attacking immigrants, attacking refugees, attacking the undeserving poor, attacking women, and so on, under the guise of addressing corruption and undue privilege. So how do we address those regressive features, instabilities, limitations? In some sectors of the left, there remains the illusion that some form of return to Keynesianism can restore more favorable economic and social conditions today. But this would be um, a a very limited effort because it would not touch on the determinants of long-term economic performance and the dynamics of the global economy under neoliberalism, which is what we have today. I think alternative programs have to draw, first of all, on traditional left concerns with equality, with improved distributional outcomes, and with the promotion of collectivity in the workplace and in society. They have to draw on the recognition that neoliberalism has demonstrated that it is resilient in practice and in the realm of ideas and we need to overcome it, but this is a very ambitious task that includes, but goes beyond, uh, electoral uh, strategies and even changes in social policy or industrial policy or financial policy or monetary policy. And then, to transcend neoliberalism, we need to recompose the working class politically. And the way, I think, I would suggest to do this is through uh, the convergence of struggles around. The expansion and radicalization of political and economic democracy. And the way to make this operational, I suggest again, is through an immediate program of decommodification and definancialization of social reproduction, focusing on health, on transport, on housing, uh, and so on. There are very compelling um, imperatives applying to the environment, to industrial policy, to energy policy, etc. And this will come uh, in the realm of interventionist policy making confronting uh, neoliberalism. The point is to open up a debate around alternative policies and then bring in mobilization around the challenges to the power of finance to organize and run our society. And and I think there is mileage uh, in this, and there is traction in this, as has been demonstrated by the Sanders campaign in the USA, by the Corbyn movement in the UK, by the achievement of uh, left movements to political office in uh, several countries recently, with Greece and Brazil um, in uh, front. But, But the administration led by Syriza and the administration led by the Workers' Party in Brazil, they have led to stunning defeats. One admittedly through external EU power, the other mainly from internal forces, although articulated with US agencies. This is a difficult challenge, but the economic and political crises of neoliberalism are unique historical circumstances with very grave implications for the left, but also offering new opportunities for renewal, uh, for influence, and for progress. Neoliberalism. If we look back historically, neoliberalism has never been so unstable, and its hegemony has never been so brittle, but it is for the left to mount an ambitious challenge on the basis of a profound critique of the uh, ambitious uh, agenda of neoliberalism with an equally ambitious agenda of the left to restructure society in a more progressive way. Thanks very much.